Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Palliative care, it's not hospice, and yet it may make things a lot easier for folks who are dealing with a major serious illness while they're going through their treatments. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Fishberg. He is the medical director of the Pain and Palliative Care Department at Queens Medical Center and chief in the Division of Palliative Medicine and a professor of geriatric medicine at John Burns School of Medicine. And today, we're going to talk about what is palliative care and how this might be something that could make life a little bit easier for those who are dealing with serious medical conditions. Welcome to The Body Show. Aloha, Dr. Kathleen. It's always so good to be here with you. I, my only regret is I can't be there in the HPR studios. Well, and we, we will have you back. You've been on before, and we will have you back in studio as soon as, well, if the pandemic would allow, and that will happen soon enough, I'm certain. But now, you've been really working hard to help educate folks about the concept that, you know, sometimes there are some things that happen in the course of treating a major medical illness that make it extremely difficult. And, you know, we talked earlier about fear being a big element of concern, that people just don't know what to expect when they have a new diagnosis. What exactly is palliative care? Or as some people may call it concurrent care or supportive care. Are all those things synonymous? And, and what exactly does it mean? Yeah, well, very valid question, Kathleen. Uh, it's, it's a fairly new field of medicine, palliative medicine, so uh, it's worth defining it. Uh, I, I find I always have to go through that with folks. Uh, palliative care essentially is it's a specialized medical care for people living with a serious illness. It focuses on providing relief from the symptoms and stress of the illness, and the goal is to improve quality of life for the patient and the family. It's appropriate for people at any age, any stage of illness, and it can be provided along with all other treatments, including curative treatments or life-prolonging treatment. Is it the same as concurrent care or supportive care? You know, concurrent care and supportive care are terms used in Hawaii for wonderful benefits that, that some of our uh, insurance providers uh, have. Um, so supportive medicines and supportive care have come to be terms because there's been so much misunderstanding around the word palliative care that a lot of people have used those terms uh, synonymously. What are some of the misunderstandings that people have about palliative care? I know that, you know, for some of my patients, they will often assume that it means hospice, and yet it doesn't necessarily. Yeah. So what are some of the myths yeah, that people I, I, have? Yeah, I think you've hit on it, Kathleen. The biggest one, I, I think, is that palliative care um, is synonymous with end-of-life care, which it is not. Um, that, that's really palliative care came into being because people were, were seeing um, some of the benefits of a focus on quality of life for those in the last chapter of life and said, hey, why can't we provide this focus on improving quality of life while people are still pursuing curative or, or life-prolonging treatments? Um, and that's really how palliative medicine uh, came to be. Um, and, and so that, again, I think is the, the big misunderstanding. People might say, well, they're not quite ready for palliative care, uh, thinking that you have to ha have reached a certain advanced stage of illness or something like that, which isn't true. Um, some people might uh, be experiencing the biggest challenges with their quality of life very early in the course of an illness, perhaps at the time of diagnosis. Um, so they might need palliative care early on, and they might not need it so much later on. 
So what are some of the diagnoses that you see where people take advantage or might want to consider taking advantage of palliative care benefits? It's more than just, you know, a lot of times when we hear about this, everyone thinks advanced stage like cancer. That is one of the diagnoses, but it's certainly not the only one, is it? No, that's right. Uh, you know, advanced uh, heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, all, all the national societies that guide the care for people with any of these illnesses, uh, dementia, um, they all recognize the importance of, of having palliative care as part of somebody's ongoing treatment. Um, in the inpatient setting where I do most of my practice, also sometimes if someone's been in a serious accident, um, so they're not, they're not living with a chronic illness, but maybe they, you know, I'm at Queens, and Queens is the, the major trauma center here, and if they've been in a, a very serious accident and they're having serious Ill issues, um, they might need help with the pain management and so on, uh, and palliative care can help there too. Now, when you work in the inpatient setting, you have a team of individuals that you work with. Who are these team members, and what sort of role do they play? Yeah, so so one of the elements of the like definition of palliative care that I omitted earlier is that it's it's interdisciplinary. So it, it it's it's doctors, it's nurses, it's social workers, it's chaplains, and and it's other uh, members of a team. Those are the, sort of the four core elements. Doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, but but we work with lots of therapists, um, psychologists, and others. They're not members of the team, but they're but they're working with us and they're allies there in the hospital. Because palliative care is really trying to focus not so much on the disease, but but the person and, and their situation. We have to, in order to look at somebody in, in a broad way like that, we really need to look at them from different perspectives. So maybe it's not just the biomedical but also the psychological, the social, or the spiritual or existential. Well, and I can just think that, you know, how many times do I have patients who get so much more of a benefit when they talk to other people who have the same diagnosis or if they join support groups or they talk to other mm -hmm. individuals because, you know, sometimes we are sort of laser-focused as physicians and we don't really take mm -hmm. into consideration all the other elements. You know, someone will ask me something that, that is common sense, like how do I get from point A to point B? And I'm like, oh, well, you walk there. And they're like, but what if I can't? I'm like, oh, okay. So sometimes it, it takes somebody with a slightly different perspective to really walk mm -hmm. through all of those challenges and help somebody with addressing those needs that, you know, I as a doc might not even consider would be an issue. So it certainly sounds like that team-based approach is definitely a huge success for the individual because they get that holistic viewpoint of what's going on with their care. Now, what would be your typical in per inpatient type of situation where palliative care would be helpful? Oh, well, uh, certainly, oftentimes, uh, if there's a symptom that's, that's not been well controlled, uh, whether it's pain or nausea, um, shortness of breath, um, uh, anxiety, uh, things like that. So, so uncontrolled symptoms are, are, are a common reason. Um, sometimes also if just somebody's uh, needing help uh, with, with coping, with understanding the, the, uh, the nature of the illness, uh, the the, the treatments that are being offered and helping them decide which are the right treatments that might be right for them. Um, I think those are the main main reasons. Do you have any stories of success of folks that maybe you've been involved with in their inpatient care? Well, well you know, we were talking earlier about um, 
uh, concurrent care, which is the um, one of the forms of, of palliative care that's available in the community here. And and I remember one of the the first people that um, uh, that, that had supportive care that that I wasn't involved in their care, but they were cared for by members of my team, um, was having really difficult controlled pain um, and anxiety related to the pain and related to her treatment. Um, and really, uh, it was preventing her from being able to proceed with her treatment. The pain was so severe, the distress was so severe. And then uh, once the palliative care and then the community, the, the concurrent care, um, supportive care was brought to bear, symptoms were much better controlled, and the person was able to proceed with their treatments at a great treatment response. It was a cancer, and she was able to get her, her uh, cancer treatments uh, completed and had a very good response to them. But that's an example where, where palliative care, if somebody's symptoms are out of control, they can't even you know, get through their treatments, um, they're in a pretty bad place. So helping them with their symptom control and improving their quality of life then allows them uh, to get through the treatments. Um, and, and, and that uh, obviously she had a much better outcome for that. Well, and it sounds like in that situation, because she had the help of the team, she was able to do the type of therapeutic treatment for her condition that did allow her to do well and get better, which, again, that quality of life, but also success of treatment is another thing that everyone really has as a goal. If there's a way to treat a condition, whether it be a symptom or an actual condition that they want to to hopefully help recover from. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I have Dr. Daniel Fishberg on the line. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about some of the different nuances between what happens in the hospital and what happens when someone goes home and how we can transition those services and what other sorts of services might be available in a home-based environment. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Shamanad University and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Daniel Fishberg on the line. He's the medical director of the Pain and Palliative Care Department at Queens Medical Center. And right before the break, we were just talking about what are some of the ways in which palliative care can help somebody who's in the hospital suffering or dealing with some symptoms or any type of situation going on with a serious medical illness. Now, this could be a cancer diagnosis. This could be heart failure, lung problems, liver disease. It could be even a sudden accident. It could also involve people who have some issues with dementia. So palliative care seems to have really expanded the options to folks who might need some extra help undergoing some of their treatments for their medical condition. I think that's one of the main differentiators between palliative care and hospice care, is that in palliative care, you are still treating your primary condition. Is that right? That's that's right. You know, hospice care uh, is, is focused on best possible quality of life for people, you know, in that last chapter of life. Um, under the Medicare rules, it's sort of estimated to be the last six months of life. Palliative care doesn't have anything like that. Palliative care is is a focus on quality of life at any time, at any any stage of an illness. Um, and while people are, are still receiving life prolonging or even curative treatments. Now, if you see individuals in the hospital for whom you're providing palliative care services, what is the transition once they go home? Are there different types of home health agencies or are there other organizations that can help with some of those needs when someone leaves the hospital environment? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question, Kathleen. The, um, when someone has you know severe symptoms, like we were talking about, obviously it's very gratifying to help them with that um, while they're in the hospital. But I, I think one of the most helpful things we can do as an inpatient palliative care team is connecting people to resources in the community. And there's good news there and there's bad news there. The bad news is we have a national shortage uh, of palliative medicine doctors. There's some, some estimate like there's one doc for every 20,000 patients in need. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty significant shortage. However, the good news is that Hawaii has come up with some very unique um, and clever approaches to deliver palliative care in the community. Um, I was actually just looking at the numbers, and, and the vast majority of patients that we see in the hospital, we are discharging with some kind of palliative care follow-up. Um, a small number of them um, we do see as outpatients in, in the, the, the Queens Cancer Center. Um, that's our only outpatient program right now is for oncology patients. But uh, uh, the clever solution that Hawaii has come up with is leveraging um, the palliative care providers that work at a hospice. Um, again, we've said that palliative care is not hospice care, but some of the uh, insurers have figured out ways to say, well, we've got that expertise in the community. We understand these patients may not be in the last six months of life and they're pursuing life-prolonging or curative treatments. We still know that expertise is in the community and we want to tap into it. So um, some people have access to a benefit called supportive care or concurrent care, um, and they can get um, very rich home-based palliative care available to them. Um, the VA nationally also offers uh, a, a palliative care benefit to, to all their veterans, um, and that's something that is now being provided in Hawaii. Um, so, so people uh, that get their health care through the VA can do that. And then there, there are different levels and intensities of palliative care that, that can be available, and almost anybody has access to some level of that if, if they're living with a serious illness. Um, some of it is going to depend on people's insurance and things like that. Um, but there's, but if you ask for it, there's usually some form of palliative care that can be available. And an important thing to recognize is that you can get palliative care in lots of different places. So I work providing palliative care in the hospital, but there are people that work with people that are at home. There are people that work providing palliative care for people who are in a nursing facility. Um, and then there are some people that, that might provide palliative care in a clinic, although that's probably the rarest model. Now, do they have the same type of team members as your inpatient team with the, with the physician, the nurse, the social worker, and the chaplain as the core? Yeah. Or could there be other yeah. team members that play a role here? Yeah. The, no, some of them are, are, have all that and more. Uh, you know, the... the uh, the level of intensity really does does vary. So some some people have other additional all those members and additional members of the palliative care team, and then you know based based on insurance coverage and things like that, um, there might be some that are more focused on uh, one or more discipline, uh, like uh, like nursing visits or social work visits or things like that. Um, but they do their best to try to match uh, the the need of the the person and the family with the resources that are available. Well, now, one of the key elements that I think even for some patients that I speak to is when we talk about setting them up to discuss palliative care, when we say to them that it's going to be provided by a hospice organization, sometimes they get a little confused. But I think you've explained it fairly fairly well, just very straightforward, and said, 
this is why we use these providers because for a lot of what they do, some of the quality of life and symptom management, it's going to be the same educational background that they need to handle the symptoms, whether you're dealing with end of life or you're dealing with active therapeutic life sustaining or life prolonging treatment. So, you know, to, to, as you said, leverage those individuals makes sense because they've got the training and they're available now as we hopefully get a more robust palliative care group that can take on some of the additional services that are needed. Until then, this, this is the ideal arrangement. So if it happens that palliative care is recommended through a hospice, it doesn't mean that people are sneaking someone into hospice. That's never, never part of the plan. But the providers might be working for the same organization and that that's actually a good thing. Yeah. I mean, one example is, you know, pain as an example for a symptom, it it doesn't work nine to five, right? People can have pain any hour of the day. Um, And so if if somebody has has severe pain in the middle of the night. They can reach out to their provider um, if it's if it's really bad and concerning. Of course, they can go to the emergency department. But if somebody is getting um, supportive care or concurrent care, um, if it's an ongoing pain that they're used to, that's just a little bit more intense than they're accustomed to, they can reach out to the to the nurse on call for their program any hour of the day or night. Um, they can get help by phone, and and if that's not sufficient, the the, the supportive care, the concurrent care program will send the nurse over to the home to see the patient uh, through and get get the symptoms under better control. Um, that's just not something that regular home care has, has staffing to do, even if they have the expertise. That's that's why it was such a sort of clever solution uh, to, to use not just the hospice expertise, but the staffing model they have to provide palliative care because they're, they're accustomed to getting calls in the middle of the night and responding to them in real time. Well, and that makes a, a whole lot of sense because you're right. Home health agencies often, they may also work from a nine-to-five basis. They may not have that after-hours yeah. additional coverage. So, you know, right. because that staffing model is already built in to what's going on, they, like you said, might be used to getting those calls or doing something therapeutic to intervene. So another reason why right. that's a great integration of that ability to have the hospice providers also provide some of the palliative care for for the patients. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, I'm going to continue my discussion with Dr. Daniel Fishberg about how some of these services are a unique way that we can really help support quality of life for individuals and what we can do to educate folks about what their options are, what's out there if they have some more questions. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Hawaii Naturopathic Retreat Center. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here with Dr. Daniel Fishberg on the line. He's the chief of the Division of Palliative Medicine and a professor of geriatric medicine at John Byrne School of Medicine and also is the medical director of the Pain and Palliative Care Department at Queens Medical Center. And right before the break, we were talking about why some hospice organizations are the service that provides palliative care and how that unique ability to coordinate those services provides the best for the individual who might be dealing with this chronic or major illness that is sudden and severe while still wanting to treat that illness with life-prolonging types of treatments. Now, with the current situation going on, Dr. Fishberg, with 
coronavirus. I know that that has changed things up a little bit and it's caused a bit of a change in how we approach things. One of the things that I know is very important is that for those folks who do have significant wishes for what they want as time goes on, uh, they may not be sick enough to require any type of hospice evaluation, but I think we're going to see a lot of folks with a lot of symptoms that aren't quite sure how to manage them that may be from the exposure to coronavirus or we talk about this group, the quote, long haulers, who we're going to learn more about next week, what kind of symptoms they might have in the long run. Do you think that's going to be another area where we're going to see some additional needs in the palliative care uh, opportunities for individuals? Well, you know, I, I think it's not even in the future, Kathleen. You're right. I mean, uh, you know, one of the uh, community-based palliative care programs that we talked about through through a payer has already recognized that that uh, COVID-19 might be a diagnosis that that people might want to access community-based palliative care for um, if if their symptoms are severe and they they, they choose to, to to stay at home, for example, and try to have their symptoms controlled there. Um, they can, they can get their supportive care. Yeah, it, you know, and you're right. It's, it's very early still in the, in the uh, evolution of this disease, but we do worry that there will be people that more people living with chronic heart disease or, or chronic lung disease who who are survivors of the long haulers, as, as you said. And just time is going to tell. Yeah, it's certainly you know that's. Coronavirus has changed a lot of things. It's why it's why you're on the phone and not in the studio. It's why, you know, a lot of folks are staying at home and doing their best. I often worry about some of the psychological impacts of people staying home and self-isolating. And that's a whole nother that's a whole nother discussion for another show of what that alienation or isolation can do to folks as well who may not have the technological ability to sort of do what some of the rest of us are doing, whether it be phone or video or Zoom conference or all these different modalities. Now, with the situation of palliative care, particularly going into the home, that becomes another issue if somebody is going to see patients because you're entering the home. Everybody's got to be careful and stay protected. Yeah. So so early in the pandemic, you know, when everyone was unsure about sourcing personal protective equipment and uh, and what was adequate personal protective equipment. There were a lot, a lot of concerns about that. But I think all of the community-based palliative care providers, to my understanding, have sort of been able to overcome that. They've, they've sourced their, their personal protective equipment. On the other side, though, there are uh, people living in the community who, who are understandably uh, very cautious about having any uh, anybody coming into their home, even if it's the health care provider. Um, so that's, I, you can't, you know, criticize them for that. That's a very understandable uh, protective instinct that they have. So I, I would add that in. That, that has been an additional challenge here, that there are just some people who they might acknowledge they could really use the help, but they just don't want to take the risk. Uh, so we're hoping that changes in, in a few months with, with vaccines and so on. Absolutely. Now, if somebody wanted to get some more information about services, even if it were to be on the inpatient side or in the community side, are there are there places they can go to? Are there websites where they can look up some more information that might help them to see if they need to access these resources? Yeah, thanks, Kathleen. Uh, I, I've always been a big fan of this one website, uh, getpalliativecare.org. That's getpalliativecare.org. 
it just gets better and better. Um, I looked at it just today in preparation for this conversation, and you put in your zip code or your state, and you just check a box. Are you interested in care for somebody at home, somebody in the hospital, somebody in a nursing facility? You just check what you're listing for, and, and everything um, shows up. And, and it looked pretty accurate when I was looking at the resources here in Hawaii. So I really like getpalliativecare.org when it's finding resources. Another uh, resource I really like um, is uh, kukuamau.org. Uh, kukuamau is our uh, movement to improve care, disclosure. It, it's a not-for-profit, and I'm on the board, uh, but it has a lot of uh, resources, similar resources in terms of finding out where you can get palliative care, but it also just has a lot of information about what's palliative care, how it's different from hospice, um, just a, a lot of good content on the website there uh, to answer a lot of questions. All right, so getpalliativecare.org and kakuamau.org, two resources if people have more questions and certainly want to find out some more about eligibility or what's, what's out there to help them. You know, and I do want to take a moment to sort of acknowledge the fact that for those people for whom palliative care might wind up transitioning to hospice care, if the treatment of their condition doesn't improve it, if there are no further life-sustaining or, or life-prolonging treatments available, that sometimes it does transition to a hospice situation, and that that's something that the good news is that if your team is already in place, they may be the same individuals that help you through this difficult time, through this end-of-life care, but also that, you know, that's that's another resource that a lot of folks either don't know about or don't take advantage of soon enough because of the great work that they do to help with symptom management and to help with that additional care and the type of extra team members, whether it be an after-hours nurse to help you or someone to help get medical equipment into your home, all of these different resources that I think sometimes people wait too long to access because they just aren't ready for that yet. But that's actually, that team is is also a great resource that people want to keep in mind when the time comes, if they need some extra help. I think the average duration of time on hospice, they've been trying to improve it because usually it's pretty late. Um, but I think the idea is for somebody who can access those benefits at least, you know, at least more than the usual two weeks or less that I think unfortunately most individuals uh, wind up in that situation by the time this comes up so that the palliative care discussion may lead itself to a hospice discussion and that that's something that is okay if you bring that up with your providers or you bring that up with the other family members that are dealing with this illness and helping you through it. Don't be afraid of that. Do you ever see that as a barrier for some of your individuals? Well, you know, just, you know, just as you said earlier, Kathleen, you know, palliative care people might not understand it or a hospice they might not understand it and 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 as we talked about earlier you know fear can sometimes keep people from from accessing the resources that they um, might really benefit from so you're absolutely right I've certainly seen people use a palliative care team um, maximize all of their life prolonging treatment and once they've maximized those benefits they can continue with their team now, now, now as hospice, and it's not as scary because it's not this nameless, scary hospice where they've heard. It's just, oh, my nurse Jane and my doc Sally and and um, my, my nursing aide and so on. It, it's people. 
it's not just a label um, uh, of a word that they may not know. So yes, that that when when palliative care leads to hospice care, that that is a potential advantage that you can keep your same providers that you've already come to trust. Um, And if individuals want to know if they're a candidate, should they just talk with their provider, their primary care doctor, and just initiate that discussion? Yeah, it's, it's, it's always worth asking if somebody has a symptom that they would like a little more help with or, or think that they might benefit from the extra support of a palliative care team. Yes, at, just as you say at the beginning of every show, ask your doctor. Um, that's really a, gr- a great place to start. All right. Well, I want to thank thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. That's Dr. Daniel Fishberg, head of the Pain and Palliative Care Department at Queens Medical Center. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk more about how to stay well on The Body Show. Mm-hmm.